Last time we began a series on the book of Acts. I did uh, some introductory material. I'll continue with a little bit of introductory material today as we begin in the book of Acts. The title last time was uh, The Church That Jesus Built, an introduction, and this is, that's the title of this whole series, The Church That Jesus Built, because, as we said last time, the Gospels are about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We see in the Gospels not only His teachings, but also His works. We see how He actually fulfilled very clearly the role of the new Adam, we see how he was the new Israel, the new David. All of these things, all of these themes from the Old Testament converge into this one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see all that coming to fruition and taking place in the Gospels. We finally see his death, his resurrection, and uh, references to his ascension. And then, of course, we know, as we talked about last time, that he did promise he would build his church. And he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against it, which means that it would continue on. Why? Because he will always be with it. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So wherever his church is, and certainly we, I think all of us here would agree there is no one organization that makes up the one true church. The true church is made up of all the people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And, uh, that, <clears throat> and I would say that would be this group of people here as well as other people out there, some scattered, some parts of other organizations, uh, some on desert islands around the world that have probably never met other uh, followers of Jesus Christ. But in any case, we understand that's what the true church is. And Jesus says it will be with us, and we see the foundation of it right here in the book of Acts. Very important book because this, this is really... As we discussed last time, this is really the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ. But now it's from heaven. He is, he's promised to be with his disciples, that he would continue his ministry, but in a different form. And that's what he was talking about when he talked about the coming of the Paracletos, Paracletos the, the comforter, the helper. He would be with his church, his people, his disciples, in a different form, meaning in spirit. He indwells the church, and with him, of course, is the Father. That's why the church is called the temple of God. So let's begin in Acts chapter 1, understanding this is the story of the foundation of that church. Now, it's not the complete story of the church. It's the story of how the church began. And it's very interesting that as you look at this and you look back at the Gospels and see the Gospels are all about Jesus Christ and, and it, it tells us all about the foundational members of the church, how he chose the 12 apostles. We read about Judas and his betrayal. In the book of Acts, we read about the selection of Matthias to replace Judas. But it's all about Jesus and his disciples. The 12, the 12, the 12, the 12. We read that over and over in uh, the Gospels. And then it begins in the book of Acts, the same thing. The 12, the disciples, those who knew Jesus in his ministry are assembled together. They're the foundation of the church. And then all of a sudden, there's a shift that takes place. We almost lose sight of the twelve, and it's all about Paul and his ministry. You ever notice that? Well, I think there's a reason for that. Part of the reason is the fact that Luke was a, one of Paul's companions in some of his journeys and some of his travels. And, and Luke, as he admits in chapter 1 of the book of Luke, 
Uh, he was not one of the eyewitnesses, but he had access to those sources, those eyewitness sources, and he knew the stories. He had heard, he'd read, obviously read some of the other gospel accounts. He heard directly from the Apostle Paul, from perhaps some of the other apostles as well, other disciples who knew Jesus. And so he wanted to put together an account. Again, let's, go, let's begin in uh, Acts, the first chapter. I keep saying that we're going to start there, and I keep adding something else to it. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, to understand, to, 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 to get a, a clue as to how we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts, Let's go back, just hold your place there and go back to Luke. Luke, the first chapter. And I'll just read the first few verses there and you will notice a similarity. Notice this in Luke, the first chapter, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. This shows Luke himself was not an eyewitness, but he had access to those sources uh, who were eyewitnesses. He says, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That gives us a clue right there as to who the author of Acts is, doesn't it? Writing to the same person, Theophilus. And so that's, uh, that's one reason that we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. You might say this is part two of his gospel, the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ through the disciples. But we also know this because of the unanimous consent of the apologists and the theologians and the, the various church fathers from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, unanimously, they all agreed that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And that's a pretty powerful witness in itself because they had access to earlier material than we do. Eusebius in the 4th century who had access to material we no longer have. Uh, confirms, or he affirms, that Luke wrote the book of Acts. So that's, uh, that's a, an important clue there. Also, when you examine the style of the book of Luke and the vocabulary of the book of Luke with the book of Acts, you see it's very, very similar. And Luke is unlike some of the other gospel writers and some of the other writers in the New Testament in that he, the Greek he writes in is awfully close to classical Greek rather than the ordinary Koine Greek that was the common Greek that was spoken during those days. That was the Greek of the common people. Greek was the closest thing to a universal language in those days, but it was Koine Greek. You know, kind of a, I guess you'd say a broken Greek. It was certainly not classical, but Luke comes pretty close to classical Greek. So you see a similarity in vocabulary and in style. And also we know because of the we passages uh, over when, uh, about the middle of the book onward. The we passages, what do I mean by that? Where the writer says, we journeyed from there to this other place. We did that. We did that. And we know that Luke was, accompanied Paul in his ministry. So it's pretty obvious that this is the same Luke. The we. He was including himself. When we did this or we went with Paul to this other place or that. This or that or the other place or whatever we and us. Uh, the we and us pertains to. So we see that. You see, for example, won't turn there, take the time to do it, but in chapter 16 and verses 10 through 17, you have several we and us statements mentioned there. 
So it's, it's definite. I think it's definite. Some people still like to challenge it, but I don't think there's any question about it, that it was Luke who wrote the book of Acts, the same one who wrote the gospel of Luke. So back again, in, in Acts, the first chapter, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when, I want you to notice four things he mentions here, and these are crucial to the story that follows. When he was taken up, the first thing he talks about is the ascended Lord, crucial to the gospel itself, the ascended Lord. After he had given commands, that's the second thing, that refers to the great commission he gave to his disciples. Through the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, big theme in the book of Acts, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the activity of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is a way of describing God in action and Christ working in and through uh, the church, the disciples. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's the fourth thing. Those four things right there. The ascended Lord, the great commission, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and this foundational office of the apostles. Those four things there are uh, major components of the story that will follow. And these are major components, therefore, of the very foundation of the New Testament church. Without them, you cannot understand the gospel. You cannot understand the mission of the church. And I would say you cannot understand fully and appreciate fully the book of Acts itself. So those four things. I'd like to focus a little bit on uh, the first one, the ascended Lord. And I've said before, and I think that sometimes we neglect that, the ascension. Well, he, you know, he ascended to heaven. Uh, what for? Well, he's waiting to come back. No, no, no. He, he, he ascended to heaven. This is, there's a real powerful, powerful statement in it. He is the ascended Messiah. He has sat down at the right hand of God. That means he is king right now. He is right now ruler of creation. Right now. And if you are in Christ, if you're joined with him in that relationship, then you are part of the new creation now. And then Revelation 21 and 22 tells you about your future when the new creation comes to full fruition. And that is a beautiful picture. But this is what, uh, this, this, this message of the ascended Lord, that he was taken up. It's more than just he disappeared and now he's, he's, he's sitting up there waiting till he can come back and get, get, the, you know, get things rolling again. No, he ascended and he got things rolling. He now works through the ministry of his disciples. He began doing it right then and right there. The Holy Spirit was sent. You know, not, no longer is the Holy Spirit only associated with the Father. God sends his Spirit. God says in the Old Testament, I will pour out my Spirit. Now we see that the exalted Christ is the distributor of the Spirit as well. So all of those things are critical to understanding this book of Acts and to understanding the gospel itself. And we'll, we'll see statements to that effect as we continue on. Uh, look, look at uh, Romans chapter 1. I want you to notice how all of these things that we just mentioned here, all these crucial components of uh, the story of the New Testament church, of Christ and his church, uh, are mentioned right here in the introduction of the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, that is the good news of God, which he promised... He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You see, it didn't mean he became the son at that point, but it was declared to be the son in power. Why? Because when he rose, he is now ascended. He is the ascended Lord who sits at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. There's your commission right there. You see, all of these elements are once again named. And it centers on the Lordship of the Ascended Lord including you who are called and belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever notice that? Jesus Christ is named right alongside of God the Father as the distributor of and as the source of grace and peace. That's powerful. We're accustomed to reading things like that, just reading right over it and don't think about it. No, this is the message of the ascended Lord. He is now Lord and King. And He is in charge of His church. Because it's His church. He said, I will build my church. I'm not going to build a, a, a denomination. It's my church. And those who submit to Him truly are members of that church. Also in Matthew 28... Let's refer back to Matthew chapter 28. We've talked about this before, but I think it bears uh, repeating. Matthew 28, here we have the Great Commission. And once again, even the Great Commission itself incorporates into it the necessity of the ascended Lord. He says, Jesus came and said to them, this is in verse uh, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I'd like to say something about that. Sometimes, Sometimes we, I think confuse Logos Christology, don't let me confuse you, Logos Christology with Ascended Lord Christology. What do I mean by that? John 1.1 1, 1 is Logos Christology. In the beginning was the Word, that's the Logos, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. We could call that Logos Christology. In other words, it's the study of Christ, it's our understanding of Christ in terms of the Logos as presented in John 1.1. 1, 1. We sometimes tend to read that into other texts, I think, and miss the importance of the Ascended Lord text. Uh, I'll give you an example. I used to think in terms of uh, when Jesus, in the night, his last night as a mortal human being on this earth, he said, uh, he was praying to his Father, he says, Now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. I used to think in terms of, well, okay, he came down here, he did what he had to do, uh, he was God before, came down here, became a man, now he's going to go back to being God again. There's something wrong with that. You know what it is? Everywhere, everywhere throughout the New Testament, it doesn't say anything like that. We read about God the Father and the Ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. 
You see, there's, there's more. It's, it's not just going back to being what I was before. He came here to do something, not just to, for temporary benefits, but he occupies an office now he didn't have. It was necessary for him to be a human being. Otherwise, he would not sympathize with our weaknesses as our high priest. And otherwise, he wouldn't be the ascended Davidic king. That's what he is. So all of that is very important. You know, I was uh, <clears throat> reading about an interview <clears throat> someone did with a Professor James Dunn, who was a well-known British theologian, and he said our language is very clumsy at times, or it's kind of awkward, and sometimes it leaves a wrong impression. He says, for example, when we talk about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, he said, that's really kind of like talking about the pre-existence of the Incarnation, and that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, does it? No, it doesn't. The, the, the Incarnation, we're talking, what we're talking about is when the Word became flesh. Well, the Word becoming flesh didn't pre-exist. The Word, and, and he went on to say, uh, is, we, we, the, the Logos pre-existed. But Jesus Christ is the human being the Logos became and the exalted one is the exalted Jesus Christ. See, now he can identify with us. That's the point of it. So anyway, moving on from that, we could spend the whole time on that subject. And it's a very important one. But uh, anyway, Jesus said, let me go back. I don't think I read all of Matthew 28, did I? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, in other words, because I have all authority now. See, it was given to me. It's, it's more than just going back to being what I was before. It's been given to me as the exalted Lord. It's given to me now. Therefore, you go, because I have this authority. Guess what? I'm going to exercise it. Through whom? Through you. Go and make disciples of all nations. There's the commission. He talks about in Acts 1 there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you have all of those things incorporated into the Great Commission. The Ascended Lord, you see the Great Commission itself, of course, and uh, these other features that we talked about here. All of which are essential to, again, understanding the story as it unfolds, and what God is doing on this earth through His people. Now let's continue on, move beyond that. In uh, verse 3, verse 3, back in Acts chapter 1, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, that's, all that is loaded. This is loaded. That one statement right there. First of all, appear to them after his suffering by many proofs. Or as some translations say, many infallible proofs. In other words, he actually did appear. He actually appeared to them. It was not merely an apparition. It was not a nighttime vision. He actually showed up in person. There he was. Said, touch me. Here, let's sit down and eat. So there he was. Appeared to them. Now that's a lot different from what you hear from some of the liberal theologians today, people like John Shelby Spong, who says, oh, well, you know, we can't really trust these myths of Scripture. We know people don't rise from the dead. People don't walk on water. People don't do all these things. Well, I agree, people don't. 
But you know, God can cause it to happen. <laughs> but here's here's the thing. But what he, what people like him will say is, how did this how did this resurrection myth get started? And here's the way it got started. Well, you know, they were sitting around afterward and they were thinking and reflecting on all the good things that Jesus taught them and all the social justice and all the other things, you know, that's the, what they focus on. And then uh, and, and somebody said, well, you know, as long as we live out that message, as long as we remember him, he will live on in our hearts. And after a while, the, you know, the resurrection myth grew out of that living on in our hearts thing. No, no, no. He, he appeared to them by many infallible proofs. You know, it, why was it that people, when they would go out and preach, would believe? One thing was the proofs they presented. He said, you know, you see the works that I do? What did Jesus do? Well, they saw him walking on water. They saw him calming the sea. They saw him cast out demons that the Jewish exorcists couldn't even touch. But with a word, he says, out, and they go, they're gone. He healed all kinds of diseases, opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. All of these marvelous, wonderful things he did, that got their attention. That was proof enough. But you know, for some reason, when he went to his death, they still had doubts. But what really canceled the doubts was when he showed up after being put to death. Now, even many of the liberal theologians admit, they will admit, that those disciples absolutely had to have believed that they really saw him. And how do they know that? Let's remember, this was the Roman world. The Roman world. The Romans believed that the Caesars ruled supreme. And that the Caesars, as they died, guess where they went? Oh, they took their place in the constellation. A, a new star up there with the gods. Now then, here come these Jews who have a dead Messiah, and what are they saying? He's risen from the dead, and he's taken his place above the heavens at the right hand of God Almighty. Above all principality and power, that means every Caesar that ever lived, or ever will live. You know, to go out and proclaim a message like that in the Roman world, you know what Romans do to you when you start threatening their authority? They smack you, smack you, hit you on the wrist, say, don't do that. <laughs> no, they hurt you. They've been known to hurt people badly for challenging the existing powers but here you had these, these Jews, and, and guess what? The Jews didn't have, were not in terribly great favor with the Romans because you had the zealots were out doing their thing, causing trouble, which resulted in Romans taking it out on the people from time to time. And now here are these guys out there proclaiming the risen Lord and saying, He's king of all. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's a dangerous thing to do in that world. And yet here are the same people who ran away. You know, remember Simon Peter? Why? And no, I won't let him do that to you, Lord. No. Uh-uh. I got my sword right here. We'll take care of things. I don't know him. <laughs> yeah. Who? Yeah. Who? <laughs> Never met him. Never saw him. So, uh, 
These, these, these who kind of you know, ran away, wanted to get out of sight after his death, now all of a sudden they're out here proclaiming the risen Lord. Something had to have happened. And it wasn't somebody had a vision or a dream. That's why there's, a, you know, there's so much solid evidence that he, they really saw him afterward. Now, I know some people say, well, he wasn't really dead. Well, no, <laughs> they were convinced he was. And, of course, the, the miracles that occurred under their hands was also convincing, element, uh, convincing evidence. So this is how the gospel was able to spread in the message of the ascended Lord. Uh, spread to not only among many of the Jews, but outside the boundaries of Judea and into the world of the Gentiles. Gentiles simply means nations. There's, there's no such thing as a race called Gentiles. That's, no, people are not Gentiles. Nations, that means nations. If you're inside Israel looking at the nations round about, they're Gentiles, they're nations. But if you're from God's perspective looking down at all nations, well, that includes Israel as Gentiles. They're all Gentiles, meaning nations or peoples, uh, sometimes used in reference to tribes and so on. But in any case, it would spread from Israel to the nations, to all the families of the earth, and that's how it was able to do it. Now then, so there were many proofs and we see the lives of the disciples themselves. They exhibited the fact that they saw the proof. It says, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now that's another loaded subject right there. And you know, we look around the world of Christendom today, and I'm not criti being critical of anybody. There's a lot of really wonderful folks out there. Uh, I've met many. I know Baptists and Methodists are just a fantastic people. I know some pastors who are just very pastoral at heart. And uh, they, they do all they can for the people they serve. And I've seen some excellent examples. And yet at the same time they talk about going to heaven when they die. You know, that's the hope that they hold out. And this, here he's talking about the kingdom of God. I think part of the problem is, you know, in Matthew's gospel... Rather than the expression kingdom of God, most of the time it says kingdom of heaven. A lot of people think, well, yeah, the kingdom of heaven, going to heaven. The kingdom that's in heaven. The reason, of course, Matthew uses the expression kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God, he's not talking about a different kingdom. He's, uh, it's because uh, the, the Jews kind of tended not to use the word God very often. Well, they would use it, but not too often. You know, they'd rather talk about uh, you know, the, the powers of heaven rather than powers of God. The kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. Uh, so, you, so you understand why Matthew, being sensitive to that, would use the expression kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom ruled from heaven. That's the source of the kingdom's power, is heaven. It's not an earthly kingdom. Uh, it uh, didn't, didn't find its origin on earth. Its origin is in heaven. That's why it's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But this, this expression, kingdom of God, you know, this is the goal of the Christian life. Not going to heaven when you die. And somewhere along the way, I don't know exactly where it did happen, but that came to be the goal. And that's why today, and I know many of you from Methodist and Baptist background and Catholic and other things, you thought in terms of, well, I'm, how do I get to heaven when I die? Isn't that, wasn't that the goal? You know, fluttering away, going up there, I guess strumming on... Strumming on whatever you strum on in heaven, sitting on clouds, 
It's kind of a boring scene, the, the only one that I could come up with. It, kind of, it, didn't, it didn't, wasn't very appealing. But the goal of the Christian life is the transformation of creation. You see, when, when it says speaking about the kingdom of God, it's obviously the same kingdom he preached about in his ministry. It says when he left, when his Galilean ministry began, it says he went out proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now you cannot divorce the message of the kingdom of God as taught by Jesus or as taught by the disciples or as we shall see as mentioned right here. You cannot divorce the message of the kingdom of God from the background scenario from the narrative that is presented to you in Scripture of the restoration of Israel and of all nations flowing to Israel and saying, let's learn about the God of Israel and of the nations beating their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks and the, you know, the lion and the lamb lying down together and all of those things. You cannot divorce the doctrine, or I should say the, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, from that narrative. And yet people do. They see the kingdom of God as, you know, the, the goal is to flee planet Earth. Just get out of here. Leave this old body behind. Get, up, get, get on up there. You know, somebody said, I don't know who to credit for this, but it has been said that God must have loved matter because he sure made a lot of it. And you know, when you look at back in the book of Genesis, you see God as creator, and he looks at his creation, and he says, this is good. Doesn't say, oh, that's bad, I got something better. No, he said, this is good. And when he made man, he said, this is very good. There's nothing wrong with the matter. It's what some of his material creatures that he made started doing that displeased him. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the, the, the message, well, let's, let's go uh, just get to, to see what that narrative is. You know, it's based on the promises given to the fathers, on the restoration prophecies. Let's, I always like to go to Isaiah, the second chapter, because it's a good uh, overall scenario of that narrative. And this is what it is. Isaiah chapter 2, the word of the Lord, I said the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any anymore. And then you have the many other passages, the, 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 the flower blooming in in the desert, uh, the lion and the lamb lying down together, and you know, and your kid playing with a cobra, it's his favorite pet, and no harm, no harm. So this is the scenario. This, this is the narrative in which all the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God must be understood. It's about restoration, not fleeing out of and going to another place. Restoration of the earth. And it involves Israel, and it involves all the families of the earth. 
as you see in the New Testament, it's not merely uh, about the predominance of Israel and then the other people kind of, you know, second-class citizens joined to Israel. No, no, no. That's why Paul says that the mystery is disclosed, and that is that the nations, the Gentiles, all the families of the earth should be co-heirs with Israel, meaning equals in the family of God. So you have restoration here. You do not have a, a fleeing out of. You know, it's almost, it's almost kind of a, a semi-Gnosticism that we have today, many people have. The idea that we need to get out of here. Uh, go someplace else. No, let, let's fix what we have here. But, you know, one of the points that I think need to be, needs to be made is that, of course we know that this is coming in the future. We know Christ will return and establish the kingdom on this earth. We know it's that time then when this mortal will put on immortality. But as citizens of that kingdom that will come, we have a responsibility right here and right now to bring, as it were, heaven to earth into our spheres of, into our lives, our spheres of existence. That's our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom. You do that by being a, a witness. You do that by when the opportunity presents to present the gospel to people with the aim of hopefully bringing them to an understanding of it. So you know, there are many, many ways. You know, we could, you could spend the next hour talking about the ways in which you can do just that. But that's all incorporated into the message of the kingdom of God and has to do also, also of course, with our responsibilities. Well, let's continue on. We could go on and on with this, but uh, continuing, and we're not going to get very far today, obviously. <laughs> Verse 4, and while, and while staying, or eating, as some translations say, with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with, or in, the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Now, <clears throat> there's something about this, I've wondered, and this is another one of those little sidebars I'll throw in for your thought processes, something you can chew on. But uh, when he says, I, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, does that mean, that, is that referring to the initial reception of the Spirit, or is it something else? Or can the expression, baptized with the Holy Spirit, refer to both the initial reception of the Holy Spirit, as well as a special, special empowerment that sometimes comes later? And I'll tell you why, why that, that question comes to mind. It's because when you read back in Luke 1.15, we won't take the time to turn back there, but you read about John the Baptist, and we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Okay? And then you read later, well, of course, you, you understand John the Baptist was the herald. He was the one sent to prepare the way before the coming of Messiah. And when Messiah came to him, what did he do? Messiah said, I came to be baptized. What did John say? Oh, sure, have you repented? No, no, of course not. No, no. He said, you want me to baptize you? You ought to be baptizing me. Now, why would he say that? Because he recognized this was the one... His ministry was to prepare the, the way before Him. This is the Messiah. Now, do we think that if John the Baptist, the herald, had the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, what about the Messiah? The Son of God. 
The virgin born son of God. You think he didn't have the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? Well, what is this about in Luke 3.21 in the Baptist and other, other, also you find it in Matthew and Mark. When he's baptized, the Spirit is seen visibly descending upon him. I've heard people say, well, that's when he received the Spirit. You think so? No, no. So the Spirit descended upon him. And then we're told, in, I like the way Mark's account put, puts it, and immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he would be have hand-to-hand -hand combat, as it were, with Satan the devil. So, you know, the Spirit comes upon him and drives him into the wilderness, yet we know that he must have been full of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit without measure from his mother's womb. So that's why it raises the question when someone's, when this expression, baptized in the Spirit or receiving the Spirit, I'm not so sure that maybe it has different meanings. In other words, a person who can have the Spirit can, see, it can still be said later that he was then filled with the Spirit or the Spirit came upon him, meaning a special empowerment from the Spirit came along. Does that make sense? Am I making sense to you? Good, good. I see some nods. Sometimes I explain things and, and, and get these puzzled looks. And I'm, not, I'm not getting through. I'm saying something wrong. I, evidently, I got that one right. But in any case, the reason I bring that, another reason I bring that up is, you know, when Jesus was with the disciples, with the twelve, or the eleven and some of the other disciples there, uh, in the... Uh, this was descended, Lord, but when he was appearing during those 40 days. And one, one of the accounts says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I used to think, well, yeah, that means what's going to happen, you know, in Pentecost. Really? It reads as if they received it then and there. Plus, when you put that together with the accounts that say that he opened, he, he opened their understanding to the Scriptures... I get the impression that they had the Holy Spirit as a down payment on eternal life, as a begettle, then and there. And that when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, it's like the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus at his baptism. It came to impart to them special gifts. Does it, does, now, does that make sense? Okay, <laughs> good, we're on the same page. So if, I, if anybody goes away and says, I'm preaching heresy here, I'll say, well, i got a room full of them. <laughs> they all agreed with it. They made me say it. <laughs> no. And I think we're getting pretty close to that time to being out of time, but let me go on just a little further. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Now this is, this is very important. relates back to what we said earlier about the kingdom of God. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, he didn't say. Jesus did not say, Oh, you foolish disciples, you just don't get it. The kingdom is in the heart. Or he said, You don't get it. The kingdom is in heaven. No, they're talking about restoring the kingdom to Israel. Because this earthly thing in mind... He doesn't say any of that. Rather, what he says is this. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
Implying what? That there will come a time, a season, when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. In other words, what we just read a little while ago in Isaiah chapter 2. Now, in connection with that, another scripture I do want to read. I don't know how to go by that clock because it's wrong. But, uh, okay, we're, we're still okay. I don't want to take you too long. But anyway, back in, uh, in, in Luke, the first chapter. Go to Luke, the first chapter again. We're depending a lot on Luke today. Luke, the first chapter. And this is, uh, let's see, let's take it up in, in verse 26 there. Verse 26. This is a very, very well-known story. Uh, you former Catholics used to recite part of it many times, sometimes many times a day. You hear it all the time. Let's, let's read it here and see. Notice some things that usually don't get mentioned. In the sixth month, the, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Or hail Mary, you know, full of grace, as it said in the... Uh, the, the well-known prayer. But she was, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, all of that, everybody knows that, don't they? You know, you 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 recited it in uh, in church. Some of some of you have uh, heard sermons about it, Christmas sermons about it in times past. But let's read on here. There's something else here I want you to notice. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Wait a minute, Gabriel. What are you talking about? That's that Old Testament stuff. That's that Old Testament kingdom of Israel stuff. And yet, that's what he says. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of the king of his kingdom there shall be no end. This again, this doesn't doesn't imply at all that Israel is a special. Israel has a place in God's unfolding plan. Doesn't make Israel greater than any other people. We understand that. The blessing is to all the families of the earth. It begins with Israel. Israel has a place in that plan. But here it is. This is is this not the same thing we read in Isaiah two a while ago? So you see how this, this narrative, the narrative from the Old Testament, must be under, you must understand the teachings of Jesus on the kingdom of God and the New Testament itself, what it says about the kingdom, about the Davidic king, about the restoration of Israel, about the blessing going to the families of the earth, must be understood in light of that narrative? Yeah, it's clearly there. Anyway, back to the text in Acts chapter 1. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you, this is, he wants them to focus on this, the mission at hand. You know, that, the kingdom will come when it comes. The Father will take care of that. You don't have to worry about that. 
And, and by the way, I might say, you don't need to go around reading headlines and trying to say, is this, is this the fulfillment of that? I think we're here in prophecy. Or work out a prophecy you know, chart, a table, and say, we're here. But guess what? We're not. <laughs> as soon as you find out where we are in Bible prophecy, I can tell you, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Uh, there's, what are the chances that you would get it right when nobody else has so far? Anyway, anyway, that's uh, he wants them to focus on the mission enhancement. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see, this was an aspect of the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom, we know, of course, is future. That's when this mortal puts on immortality. If in this life only we have hope in God, we're miserable, aren't we? And yet, at the same time, we have to realize that as citizens of that future kingdom, we have, as disciples of Jesus, we have a mission now in bringing heaven to earth in a sense. And you know what I'm talking about. And that's exactly what the, uh, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, the model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the question for us is, are we doing that in the now? That's what he's talking about. That is an aspect of the, the way the kingdom comes. It's in the future. If there is no future kingdom, there, you know, we're, we're just spinning our wheels and doing nothing right now. But knowing there is a future kingdom, knowing the kingdom will come to full bloom, to, full, to its fullness someday, then we, that, should, that should motivate us to do what we need to be doing now in bringing a little bit of heaven down to earth in our lives. Verse 9, And, and, we had said, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their, their sight. Now, that had to be some kind of experience in itself. We go to the movies and we watch, uh, you know, little Kal-El from Krypton come to Earth, and he can do this sort of thing. <laughs> Superman, and those of you who don't, <laughs> who don't know. We, we, but, but, you know, to actually see, stand there and watch this man begin to ascend... That must have been one breathtaking experience. And no wonder they kept looking up even after he went out of sight. I would be too. I'd, I'd still be over there looking. <laughs> you know. It says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, put quotation marks around that one, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This means that when he comes again, this is not talking about coming in spirit form, that's a different subject. This means when he comes again to bring to completion and fulfillment the kingdom promises, it's going to be visible. Just as you see him go, he will be seen coming. Not going to be an invisible thing. He didn't come back. What is the date that Jehovah's Witnesses put on it? Came invisibly. Only the spiritual eyes could see him. No, these were not spiritual eyes that were looking up. These were physical eyes watching him ascend out of sight. And he says, just as you see him go, he will so come again. 
And that is the promise right there. That's it, the promise of the second coming. And it is that at that moment when this mortal shall put on immortality. It is then that we shall see finally for ourselves, if we are in Christ, we will see the fullness of what life is all about come to its completion, at least for us. And then be able to participate in making it happen for the rest of the world. Well, that's about as far as we're going to get today. If I go any further, I'm afraid we'll take uh, another hour. I don't want to do that. Uh, so we'll take it up next time I'm here with that verse. Let's see, we got to, we finished uh, verse 11. We'll start in verse 12 next time.